0: Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. All right, guys. Hey, we are one week away from ending our series, Finding the Life of Your Love. It's been a really fun one. and Man, I really enjoyed the conversations around just asking what's God's vision for relationships and just talking about how ultimately what we find in scripture is that God's vision for relationships is love, is that we would reflect love and how that love is defined ultimately by Christ and Jesus' self-giving of himself towards us which culminated with him on a cross and that is our picture of how we are to live into every relationship. We've identified how the enemy of that love is our own self-centeredness. And how that, that works in every arena. We've talked about marriage, singleness, friendship, dating. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about sex, and how that's, those same principles apply. And uh, this is, I, I think, there's pastors who probably like enjoy, like, yeah, sex talk. Uh, I wasn't like super looking forward to this. <laughs> um, and I think because it's the the complexity of it, like, what do you talk about? What do you not talk about? I've spent the past two or three months just reading everything, listening to everything I could on God's heart towards sex. And I have, um, on one hand, been really encouraged and learned a lot and convicted. And on the other hand, I've been incredibly saddened uh, by some of the lies that we've come to believe about sex. And so, my hope is just to kind of share that journey with you guys this morning uh, to share through the Word of God, ultimately, His heart towards the idea of sex and realizing that every single one of us in this room come today with a sense of a presupposition, a worldview, a formation, if you will, of sexuality. What we think about sex, it might be positive, it might be negative. Uh, you might be single, dating, married. You, you could be have all sorts of different things where you have a positive view, uh, things that negatively could have been done to you or from you. I mean, there's so many layers to this uh, that ultimately we have to surrender this over to the Holy Spirit, that he 's got to be the one who takes this, uh, god 's word and, and this message, and hopefully meets you where you are, wherever you are. So would you I know we've prayed a few times today, but could we just one more time could we just invite the Holy Spirit to come and just uh, just really have his way this morning? Lord, as we dive into this topic, um, I, I recognize that even if I had um, hours to communicate, uh, I would still miss things. Lord, I know that even even though I want it, I know that I'll miss a level of empathy that's needed here. Um, but Holy Spirit, I recognize you can cover all that. Lord, you have the ability to take uh, this condensed content, Lord Jesus, with a flawed communicator, and you can do wonders with it. So we ask that you do that. Pray that the end goal of today would be healing and grace and hope, and Lord, we, uh, we just trust that you're going to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, quick survey. Anyone remember the first time someone, a parent, a friend, a TV show, the first time you learned about sex? Can you say, I don't do this, but can you raise your hand? Do you remember it? Or just kind of like all of a sudden you just were aware someday that it happened. Um, I remember watching Titanic with my dad. And it was the premiere. So we had no idea. We had this like big IMAX thing, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm too young to fully understand what's going on. All of a sudden, I just feel this large hand just whack me across the face to cover my eyes, which led to a conversation that night that I did not want to have. And, <laughs> and then from that point on, kind of my understanding of sex and the formation that I had primarily came from my friends at school. Uh, which was not great. They were not qualified to be teaching me about what sex was and was not. And, and I feel that's kind of all of us. Like we all have been formed with an understanding of sexuality that is probably not ideal. So we come today and we've picked up bits, bits and pieces, whether that's through learning or experience. And we're sitting here today and all of us live out our understanding of sexuality differently And so my hope today is that you take whatever whatever has formed your idea of sex and just for a few moments, you'd set it aside. And we could begin to just take a look at the scriptures and say, what is God's vision for sex? And to let that begin to kind of overrule and overtake uh, maybe the vision that we currently have. Um, my my belief today is that when we understand God's vision for sex, that it would be the most compelling, beautiful vision that you've ever heard, and that would be the one we choose to live into. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a heads up of where we're going today. The seven things we're going to try and cover in the next few minutes. Um, number one, we're going to talk about God's vision for sex. And we're going to compare that with number two, culture's vision for sex. We're going to look at those two stories that we believe we live into. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take those two visions and we're going to see how they work out neurologically, sociologically, psychologically, and we're going to see where they land. And we're going to just as objective as we can, uh, think for ourselves which one uh, leads us to flourishing and abundance in life. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. So let's begin just talking about God's vision for sex. And um, gosh, that's a daunting thing. I mean, that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. We're just going to kind of scratch the surface, but I think we're going to begin where we should, and that's the beginning. It's always a good place to start. And we're going to be looking at God's original intent when it comes to sex now we're going to be focusing in on three really crucial Hebrew words that can shape our understanding of how God views sex. And so we're going to begin. Um, we're going to be kind of skipping through some verses. We have so much content today, but you can look on the screen. Genesis 1, starting verse 26a, says, "Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness." So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The first Hebrew word we're going to learn today is the word tov. Can you say tov? So tov is the Hebrew word for Good. And it's this word you see again and again in the first poem of Scripture. God created, and it was tov. Tov does not only mean good, a sense of morality. It means a sense of wonder or beauty. It means lovely. And it's, it's almost as if you can imagine God makes something, and he just steps back and goes, wow, tov. This is good. This is beautiful and lovely. And it begins to crescendo as he makes man and woman and draws them together together. And he gives them these two intro commands. One is to create, and the next is to procreate. And so in the very kind of opening commands to humanity is the command and the kind of the giving of sex, right? And, and as he says this, he looks back at the very end of it, and he doesn't just say tov. He says, it is very tov, right? This is very good, and I think that this is crucial because just to be honest, I think kind of growing up uh, for me in kind of a Christian uh, home, uh, what I realized is I believed, I didn't believe sex was wrong, but I believed it was private, I shouldn't talk about it, and which that led me to kind of this uh, kind of repressive, confusing kind of state of like, well, I don't really know what to do with it. But when we open up the scriptures, one of the very first things we see is that God just says, hey, I made sex and it's awesome. And we have to begin there. We begin with Tove. Secondly, if you go to Genesis chapter two, we begin to start seeing some more of the details of the story. And uh, let's just skip down to verse 24. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, right, his covenant there, And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So I want to talk about the word one and the word shame here because I think these are crucial to understanding God's vision for sexuality. The first one is the word one flesh. One flesh is the the Hebrew word hechad. And hechad is this idea, um, like it says here, of one. uh, But it's also the word for sex. Um, It's also the word for fusion. And so we see um, actually here a few verses earlier when it says that uh, Adam, God took a rib, one rib out of Adam's side. Uh, that word is a cut. It came out of him. And then when he made, when he made Eve and they um, became one flesh, that God joined back together. So it is a very uh, vivid kind of imagery of what oneness looked like. So we have tov, Wonder and beauty and goodness. We have a god, it's oneness and union. And secondly, it says they were naked and felt no shame. Which, if you know anything about uh, kind of Eastern culture, specifically kind of the Judea culture, uh, nakedness was a place of severe shame. But in the garden, it was full exposure. And it says that there was no basha. And basha is the word for shame. There was an absence of basha when you were fully exposed. And this is how we are introduced to sex. We have a God who creates everything and everything was good, but when he talks about men and women and they're, they're designed to go and procreate, it is very good, it's told. But when they come together, it's a kad. It's this union, it's oneness within, the, within covenant. And within that, you have no basha, you have no shame. And this is how we're introduced to sex in the scriptures. Which is, again probably not what I would have thought when I was like 17 18 years old um still kind of newer in my faith and kind of understanding it. that's not the narrative I would have pitched uh, to you and it's really not the narrative that the culture says that what what religion says but again this is what I'm talking about religion as much as we're talking about Jesus's view for sex and how it's this incredibly beautiful vision but within that story uh, if you turn to chapter three, you find something happens that distorts everything. We have what we call theologically the fall when Adam and Eve living in this perfect paradise, unpolluted with sin and perfect union with God um, make a decision that they wanted to find good and evil for themselves, they break relationship with God and then that, that 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 was no longer there was all of a sudden present. Shame entered the story and not only shame, but selfishness into the story. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve are caring about themselves rather than each other. And so the, the introduction of selfishness and shame has plagued every area of life. It's plagued relationships, finances, the earth, um, our natural resources, and it has plagued sex. Shame and selfishness have kind of weaved their way into every arena of life because of the fall. But today, specifically, we're going to talk about how that has shaped our understanding of sex. So, we have a response. How do we respond to the brokenness of sex? Sex is a powerful, powerful tool. No one would argue with that. And so, John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, he I think really eloquently points out uh, two common responses. Historically, there's been the religious response, which has been morality plus willpower equals holiness, um, and that has been going. That's like not, not new. That's old. That's been going on for hundreds and thousands of years, not even just within Christianity, but within all kind of, re, kind of religions. It's this idea that if you do the right things and have enough strength to do the right things, then you will be holy. But what we find is that the reality is morality plus willpower equals failure. It never works out. We are never strong enough to get ourselves back into right relationship with each other or with God cue Jesus coming and making it right for us. And then there's our culture's response to the fallenness of sex and, and its response is this. Desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent, I mean that it, it, it sells us this idea that this is what will bring you life and freedom. But after dozens if not hundreds of counseling sessions where I've sat with people in my office weeping because of this narrative, it's easy to believe that desire plus consent equals disillusionment. It doesn't deliver on the promise that it's tried to sell us. So I want to with with these two things in mind I want to just give us a definition of God's vision for sex and a vision or and a definition for the culture's vision of sex and we'll dive a little bit more into the culture's here in a second but let's just let's just get some working definitions here. Number 1, God's vision for sex based on these three Hebrew words we just kind of unpacked Is self giving, unashamed, beautiful union within the arena of covenant. That arena of covenant is where things get sticky with kind of the dominant narrative of our day. We'll talk about that in a second. The culture's vision of sex is landing almost exactly opposite it is self centric, confusing, anxious recreation within the arena of consent. And so right it's it is this it's recreation for consenting adults that's what sex has become. And so I want to dive a little bit more into these definitions. We've talked about God's vision for sex. Let's talk a little bit more about the culture's vision for sex. We live in a culture that's obsessed with it. It's everywhere we go. It's everything we listen to. It's, a, it's everything that we see on social media and, and in articles and in the news. I mean, it's, it's the, the common kind of cliche that sex sells. Or There's something about that. It's never been more prevalent um, than it has and more accessible than it ever has. But I think what has happened is that since the garden, we have mistaken a good creation for a greater God. You see, we have taken the good things in life, whether that's sex whether it's food, whether it's health, all things that God designed and gave us and we've turned them into gods themselves. We've worshiped them rather than the creator of those things. And this is what's happened within our culture. I wanna lay before you five cultural shifts that have happened within the past 50 years within America that has led to a complete disorientation as far as what sexuality actually is. Uh, This is not, this is, based on research, this doesn't really matter what you believe, these are just kind of facts, that we, uh, the, uh, the amount of cultural and sociological shift that has happened within our understanding of sex is astronomical. Some sociologists say that nothing has changed more than our understanding of sex within the past 50 years, even technology. So let's walk through five cultural shifts. Number one, sex has been disconnected from childbearing and family. Uh, birth control, as we know, it dates back to 1960, 1960 when the FDA approved the first contraceptive. But it was not till 1972 that a contraceptive was approved for a single person. Think about that. 1972 was the first time in America, our nation, that a single person could receive legally a contraceptive. Which began to start shifting things that all of a sudden, up to that point, up to around 1972, in America and around the world, if you were to have sex, you had a very real uh, chance that there would be procreation to follow. And it made you really think about having sex, right? And it doesn't mean that there weren't ways around it, and ways, to, but there was this overall, there was not an accessibility for that. And what has shifted is that sex no longer was attached to procreation, it was attached to pleasure, that, and that began to just grow and build, which leads to our second, the sex has been disconnected from marriage. Again, nothing new. We've had, we've had kind of, if we look throughout the human history, but what you've seen is it grow astronomically just based on the percentage that people do not wait to have um, sex until they're married. As a matter of fact, it's more and more, you kind of, the people look confused if you've decided that. Like, Why? That's just the norm now. Why, why would you wait? Don't you want to know if they're sexually compatible before you get married? And this is kind of the cultural vision for sex. But what's happened is that has created a lot of anxiety around sex. And what, you, what is too much? And is they the right person? And what do they do with that? And the amount of brokenness that has been a result of that um, firsthand has been incredibly prevalent Number three, we've seen sex has been disconnected from male and female relationships. Although this has really been on the rise since the 1980s with the LGBTQ community, it wasn't until 19, or sorry 2016 that our country, the U.S. Supreme Court, legalized gay marriage. So regardless of where you stand on that issue, we're not going to dive into that today, it's new. The legalization of it where the U.S. Supreme Court overrode any kind of state legislation to say, no, this is what's okay for our country, Uh, has happened within the past five years. And so, again, regardless of where you've landed, we have to admit this is a new thing our culture is wrestling through, and most of the time it's not done well within the church, too. Fourthly, and what I believe is the biggest shift of all, is that sex has been disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment of any kind. Because of the internet's aid, we now have uh, social media, dating apps, hookup culture, where now the, the cultural narrative is no longer just like you can have sex with everyone. You can say you can have sex without even having any real relationship at all. You can just go and Find someone, meet someone at night, and have to, and, and this is and we're told that though this is this is not only normal, it's freedom. This is what it looks like. Donna Fredis in the book The End of Sex says more and more people are delaying marriage to focus on their career. And during the hiatus, which lasts anywhere from 10 to 20 years post-graduation, they still want sex but with no love, emotion, or relationship, all of which are time-consuming, hard work, messy, exclusive, et cetera. Eventually they want to tie sex to commitment in a loving relationship, but right now they just don't have the time. This is where we are. Uh, Cue the rise of pornography. Because of people prolonging the idea of marriage or even committed relationship in general, but the drive for sex has not gone anywhere, Uh, they will go one of two routes. One is they will just find multiple sexual partners, um, and if they do not have uh, kind of the, the ability to do that, then they will turn to pornography, which is now over 95% of men uh, say that this is a regular part of their life. But the fastest growing demographic is women, which is now 70 or 80% would say that this is kind of a normal part of their life. Uh, and the reason for that is you used to have to go to a bookstore or a place to go view pornography with the chance that someone might observe you. But because pornography has become so accessible and private, now it's become not only normal in the sense of its availability, but normal in the sense of its, its, its acceptance. Um, I remember even in junior high to high school watching the dialogue change from something like, have you seen this? To like, you don't watch that? Like, it was this very, like, oh, this is just normal now. This is a normal part of a lot of people's marriages, like, according to the culture. Like, oh, it's just, yeah, whatever, whatever works for you. Time Magazine recently came out with a cover. It said, Porn Kills Love. Again, obviously not a religious magazine in any regards. But based on the neurology and the... Psychology that's going on behind pornography, it has created a massive rise in erectile dysfunction medication and the reliance on that to be even have sexual fulfillment. And there's all sorts of research upon kind of what that's done. And so, Dr. Doug Rice, who's, um, who's a neurologist, writes this about pornography. He says, Sex and pornography can get into a man or woman's heart to the place where it replaces God. It becomes an idol. And how do you know it's an idol? When you're in pain, you go to your idol. When you're in need, you go to your idol. When you're hurt, you go to your idol. When you want to celebrate, you go to your idol. I don't think it's coincidence that the five times in the New Testament the word warfare is used, it's always within the context of your mind. So in the New Testament, when it talks about, there's plenty of war going on around the New Testament. For the authors of the New Testament, for the Holy Spirit, it's about your mind. This is the battle that takes place. And this is where we have kind of arrived at a culture. It's interesting to find that uh, the research is showing that teenagers are having less and less sex. And for uh, kind of the morally conservative, for the religious, we're like, yeah, one for, one for us. Until you realize it's simply because of pornography. Um, pornography has done two things. Uh, One, it has satisfied people's sexual desires enough for them to not step into that fear of rejection of trying to flirt or seduce someone else. Secondly, there's a ton of research based on the text messages and social media that people's ability to even have relationship enough to get someone to sleep with them is, is dissolving. And so there is a massive cultural shift that's happening as a result of pornography that we we are detaching from relationship at all when it comes to sex, Uh, which leads to our fifth um, cultural shift is that sex has been disconnected from people at all. Uh, There has been a lot of articles recently um, on the rise of sex robots. Uh, Sex dolls have kind of been a thing for a while that people have kind of mocked and made fun of. Well starting in Japan, but now moving into Australia, New Zealand, Korea, now into America, is they have taken these dolls and they have infused them with artificial intelligence. So not only can they provide physical sexual fulfillment, but they can pre-program to say whatever, be whatever personality you want, and then all of a sudden you have this lack of this thing that is providing some sort of sexual fulfillment for you. Um, John Mark Comer, who was gracious enough to provide me with his research, I was talking about uh, an interview he's having with a filmmaker of a film called 2D Love, where they follow this trend of sex robots. One of the quotes from this movie says, You're free from all the responsibilities of being in an actual relationship and to enjoy some sort of acknowledgement from an entity that is not you in your own head. Walking um, Phoenix was just in a movie called Her is about this. I mean, this, this is less sci-fi and more reality than we realize, and it's not going anywhere fast. Because we are now removing sex from even people in general. And kind of within this kind of culture now, however much you spend on this robotic system thing uh, results in how much you love them. And you're like, well, that just sounds kind of weird and out there. But what's interesting is not only have we disconnected sex from people in regards to kind of this artificial intelligence, we've done it with the rise of human trafficking. 27 million people in the world today are trafficked against their will. Why? Because we've created a culture that can enjoy or think they're enjoying sex with someone who's not even a person anymore. It's just a property. This is, this is our world. And so I want to kind of come before you, and just re- and just to kind of lay these two visions before you. We have God's kind of biblical vision for sexuality, and we have the culture's vision for sexuality. They could not be more different at their core, and they are both promising freedom and flourishing. But I would love to just take a moment and say which one is actually doing that, which one is actually providing that, based on. Science, neurology, psychology, sociology, uh, based on our identity, and so I wanted to spend some time doing that. But but lastly, I just wanted to read you this quote from Carol Queen, who's a sexologist. She's not a believer, and and she writes about sex. She writes about sex like this. This is, I think, a good summary of where our culture is landing currently, and it'll change another five to ten years. But currently, is where they're landing. It's a simple yet radial affirmation that we each grow our sexual passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even a half dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positivity respects respects each one of our unique sex profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual differences and possibilities." Ronald Rollheiser, famous Catholic theologian, says, when you don't follow your desires, you have to examine your desires. And let's do that. Let's just for a moment, let's examine these two stories, these two visions, and let's see how they hold up. Uh, let's talk about the brain for, uh, for a moment. Uh, <laughs> to pretend that I'm a neurologist would be silly. Uh, but I want to just mention five elements of the brain And uh, after we kind of talk about these five elements of the brain, I want to just start seeing how they relate to sex in God's vision and culture's vision. Uh, The first is understanding the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system of the brain. So the limbic system is your inner core of your brain. It is where kind of your primal, primitive instincts, fight or flight, your emotional memories are stored. This is where your sexual decisions come from. Uh, At the front of your brain is the prefrontal cortex. This is your command center of your brain, which makes rational, logical decisions. And so what will happen is your limbic system will operate out of uh, impulse or urge, and your uh, frontal cortex will say, ah, that's not a good idea, or go ahead and go through with that one. It kind of regulates the limbic system. What's interesting is that the the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed till you're 25, which makes a lot of sense for some of the decisions we've made before we were 25 in our teenage years, is you're living kind of in this primal sense of obeying your urges. And it's not until you're a little bit older that you have the wherewithal to even kind of speak to that, but it's important to know that our, our sexual formation takes place in the limbic system, which is, which is fascinating when it comes to people trying to sell people, hey, stop looking at pornography. You're, you're appealing to um, someone's morality, which is in their prefrontal cortex, but you're not dealing with their limbic system. So to change someone's limbic system, kind of at their core level, It takes sometimes two to five years to change the neurological pathways that have been developed in there, to develop healthy enough habits. Habits work much better in the limbic system than reasoning. You literally have to change that. So I want to kind of have those two, we have our limbic system, our prefrontal cortex, and within that, there's a neurotransmitter that gets released called dopamine. Dopamine is a powerful thing that helps the brain's reward and pleasure centers. Dopamine is released as an emotional response enabling us to identify rewards and to take actions towards them. So dopamine is released, say when you're having sex, it feels good, you have pleasure, dopamine's released. That pleasure you're feeling is dopamine, At the most, the largest sexual organ you have is your brain. Um, And so, as it releases dopamine, it's rewarding you, which is teaching your limbic system to go back to it. And that's its job. It's to say, This is good. Food is good. Eat more food. So, that felt good. You should have some more of that. And this is dopamine's job. And as it's doing that, it is grooving in. Think about water running down a bank. The longer the water runs, the more time water runs, the deeper that groove gets. And this is what's happening within our own brain. Besides the neurotransmitters, there are hormones that are released. One of those is oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone that produces attachment. It is released three, it's primarily released within women. It's released three times uh, in your life. It's released when you are giving birth to a child. A flood of oxytocin comes into your brain. Uh, number two, it's released when you're breastfeeding. So if a woman is breastfeeding, it is connecting uh, that mom and child in a healthy way. And it's also oxytocin is also released when you're having sex. Uh, for guys, we have a little bit of oxytocin that's released, but primarily we have a different hormone called vas- vasopressin. And vasopressin works a little bit different than oxytocin. It will work anytime you have a sexual climax. Whatever you're viewing or fantasizing, it liter- quite literally etches that image in your brain as a form of bonding and attachment. So whatever dopamine was rushed in when you were looking at that thing, it has now etched that image, and it begins to define what you were imagining or viewing as your definition of what's good and beautiful. So uh, again, super quick flyby over how the brain works. Let's begin to compare these two visions and how they work out neurologically. So, God's vision, right? Selfless, beautiful, the arena of covenant kind of love. You begin to start seeing how the brain would function within that. Oh, well, that limbic system, the primal system now has a way to have a healthy way to promote those grooves that the longer you're with someone, the more natural it is for you to stay with someone. That monogamy produces a healthy environment for children to be raised in. That dopamine that's released when you're having sex within the confines of a covenant marriage also does something It's rewarding you, which tells you you should have more of this. This is good. You should continue to go and, and to be with that person. I'm rewarding you neurologically, for doing this. Uh, for women, during sex, your body is releasing a home says, I should be with this person. Uh, men, as you're, as if your eyes are open, you're envisioning your wife as you're sleeping with her, what's happening is your brain is telling you this is your definition of beauty. And you begin to start seeing, seeing that if God's vision is true and good and beautiful about sex, neurologically, it is incredibly beneficial. Everything works together for each other's good to aid that marriage. Sex is a gift. Remember we talked about it is the covenant renewal ceremony. It adds to that union. Well, let's take a look at culture's vision for sex and let's begin to see how confusing this might get. When you have multiple sexual er, partners or when you view pornography, a few things are happening. One is that rather creating one deep groove with one person, you're creating multiple shallow grooves which makes your ability for your frontal cortex to calm your limbic system, or to kind of tell it to be reasonable, less likely. Uh, The dopamine that's released with that, the reward center that's going in when you're with one person into the next to the next, it needs to release more and more and more because it thinks it's changing your mind. Which means when you end up with someone, whether through marriage or a lifelong partner, long enough, all of a sudden you've literally, quite literally exhausted your ability to create dopamine. So your reward center to be with that one person that you emotionally want to be with is actually hindered. Um, for women who have multiple sexual partners, what happens is the, the amount of oxytocin that's released throughout these different people begins to wear off. You're, and this is where attachment theory is a kind of a prominent thing right now, is people are having anxiety around attachment because of so much neurological damage that's happened because of the cultural narrative of sex. Um, for guys who view pornography or multiple sexual partners, when they're viewing different people as they're having sex, what happens is they begin to have multiple signals coming to them. And when they're trying to have sex with their spouse, all of a sudden other things are coming to their mind and they are unable to have a sexual rise or release when they're having sex with the person that they love with all their heart. And by the way, this, this, is, I'm not making this, this is stuff that I'm not just reading about. I deal with all the time when I'm counseling people. I'll sit down with incredibly handsome, intelligent men who cannot have sex because, this, because of the narrative they chose to live into. Now, if you're sitting here and immediately you're just feeling depressed, depressed right now, just stick with me. It gets better. Okay, there's hope at the end of this. But again, the goal is to just, just kind of weigh these two visions and say, which one is actually promoting human flourishing? Let's talk a minute about the body. You guys ready for this? This is kind of interesting. Let's talk about your sex drive. For males, your sex drive peaks at the age of 17. Go figure, right? Like, didn't, need, didn't take rocket science to figure that one out. Females, your sex drive peaks when you are 50 years old. <laughs> good news for me, you know, I'm just like, Jen, yes, good, good. Um, What's interesting, though, is even though a female sex drive is increasing um, and males are decreasing, it's never quite as high as a male's is, even in decrease, so. Still number one. Um, Sexual climax. I mean, there's all sorts of cultural satire around this, right, that guys can receive sexual climax within seconds. And that's incredibly frustrating for women because sometimes that takes um, multiple minutes and sometimes even emotionally will take a day or two just to emotionally be able to feel satisfied within that. Uh, Let's talk about stimulation. Uh, Guys, for the most part, this is actually starting to change a little bit as we're observing culture. For the most part, guys are stimulated sexually through vision, what they're seeing. And for females, it's primarily emotional Right, so guys, as cool as your six packs are, uh, normally for a female to have sexual arousal, it comes through a sense of emotional safety and being known that will open her up to having greater pleasure during sex. And so you begin to start looking at this, and you're like, why? God, why would you do this to us? Why would you make us so different sexually? That's really inconvenient. Wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be better if, if we were just exactly the same, right? If we, if we have the same drive and the same, like, uh, stimulation, the same climax, all these things and you begin to start asking us questions and the answer to that is, yeah, that'd be way easier if sex was about your own self-gratification, but maybe it's not, Maybe when God designed a man and woman to be together and have such vastly different biological sexual desires, he knew he was giving them one of the greatest vehicles for love. My favorite definition for sex is making love. You know why? Because there's no greater ability I have to love my wife than to think about how she's wired, how God has wired her, whether that's sexually, psychologically, her giftings, and to think, how do I meet her there? Tim Keller uh, points out in his book, The Meaning for Marriage, the, bec- the best sex a married couple will ever have is when the husband is thinking 100% about the fulfillment of the wife and the wife is 100% thinking about the fulfillment of the husband. And it's true. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about kind of the privacy of Jen on sex life, but I will say that this has been one of the greatest lessons we've ever learned. Sex is not about me. It is a gift that God has given me to honor and love and prefer my wife. And as she lives into that same reality towards me, we have found that God's vision for sex has not decreased over time in our marriage. It has only flourished and gotten better. And I'm not saying that this is in the case of everyone. Because of the brokenness, because of our culture and what sex has done, I'm not saying this is just some foolproof equation. What I am saying, though, is when two people, which it takes both, to live into this vision, the, the possibility for peace, mending, healing, shalom, and fulfillment is astronomically more than two people who choose to view sex as a self-gratifying act rather than selflessly giving oneself in love. Let's talk about our identity. Our culture and the Bible have very different views about sex and identity. Uh, we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but before we do, uh, Corinth is a really interesting town. It was kind of the birthplace of dualism, which if you study philosophy, it was kind of birthed out of Plato and Aristotle, who both lived in Corinth. And dualism says this, that the physical world and the spiritual world are separate, which means who you are is not your body. And so this practice kind of fleshed itself out by you would go, males were allowed to go and sleep with whoever they want. As a part of their pagan worship, they would go sleep with prostitutes at a temple. Why could they do that? Well, because their spirit's not their body. Separate. Um, this is super common today when our, within our culture. And they say, hey, it's just your body. It's, not, it's, just, it's just an appendage, right? It's not who you are. You're so much more. Or culture has swung to the opposite, saying, Thing where it says that your sex is your only identity. It is your highest identity. And this is the kind of the cultural narrative within identity and sex. is Either it, your body doesn't matter at all or you are who you have sex with. And the scriptures give us something entirely different. Listen to Paul's uh, insight as he writes to the church. The, the, the word of God says this. And he quotes the culture. I have the right to do anything. It sounds like our culture, doesn't it? You say, but not everything is beneficial. He quotes him again. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. He's just kind of quoting very common things our culture still believes today. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and he quotes Genesis 2, the two will become a cod, one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is a cod with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's a lot of question about what this means. The best definition I've heard from a scholar is that when sex is against your own body, meaning sex is a distortion of your true self, Sexual sin distorts who you truly are. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The early church had a fascinating practice within Corinth. Women were sold, much like they are in parts of today through human trafficking, and the church would go and purchase these women who were going to be sold for prostitution and human trafficking, and they would free them. They would pay the price for their freedom and then let them go and be free. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? And this is where we begin to start seeing that, wait a minute, my body and my spirit are not separate. I, my body is a part of who I am. It's unhealthy theology to somehow think that I'm detached from my body. This is a part of who I am. But this is not all who I am. It's not healthy for me to view my sexuality as the core of my identity. I, it's, it's unhealthy for me to view my sex life with my wife or even my sexual orientation as a core of who I am. It's a part of who I am and a big part of who I am. But according to this, I belong to Jesus. That has to be my core identity. Because if not, whether it's success, achievement, relationships, sex, all those things that want to be our identity will fail us. They will leave us lonely and broken. And Jesus is the only one who says, if you let me be the core of your identity, I'll speak to your success. I'll speak to your sex. I'll speak to your finances. I'll speak to your relationships. This is what he's longing to do. Number six, let's talk about how love if love is how we've been defining it the past week, how does that relate to sex? Well, John Tyson, again, gives us four pillars of God of godly sexuality. I think they're brilliant and really well said. I just want to lay these before you. Number one, sex is a signpost to a greater story and longing. Our sex drive, which is a part of who I am, is actually a signpost to a greater longing I have, which is a cod with Jesus. It's union with God and union with others. Number two, Uh, God, godly sexuality believes in holistic integration, body, soul, and mind. If you are married, one of the things that um, psychologists, Christian psychologists say to do is when you're having sex, if you are married, have your eyes open, light a candle, have lights on, engage all of your senses because sex was not given to be done as this shameful, secretive thing. It was meant to be this holistic part of who you are. Number three, Sex is tied to our transformation. If you're married, it is one of the most um, tangible ways for you to express selflessness to your spouse. If you're single, this is one of the ways you can express your devotion and contentment to Jesus. Sex is one of the greatest forms of transformation that we have. Number four, it's a witness to the world. How the reason why this biblical vision for sex, even though it makes sense neurologically and sociologically and psychologically, It's still odd in our world. And that's what creates the witness. It's important for us to remember that when the early church won over the Roman world, it did that by three ways. The historians say there's three things that helped them capture the entire Roman world without ever having an army. And there's three things. Number one is how they died, that they're willing to die for their faith. Number two, how they were financially promiscuous. They would give and give and give. And thirdly, said they were faithful in their sexuality. Listen to what one, one historian writes in a letter to Diagnesis in the first or second century. He says, they, talking about Christians, they marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offering, offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. This is what changed the world. was this is witness. And I think this is what God is calling us into, is in adopting and living into this new uh, beautiful vision. That's it's gonna feel incredibly countercultural, but I just I hope today you just see maybe, just maybe this is worth a try. But then comes the question, well, but what happens with my past? How do I move forward if if, if what you're saying is true? but my past does not look like that. Maybe because you, you've never heard this before. Maybe because you've been hurt and and broken because of sex. And you're here today and you're like, to be honest, I just feel kind of lousy now. There's a couple of things I want to just lay before you before we leave. It's the idea of healing and blessing. Let's talk about blessing within sex first and let's talk about healing from wounds within sex. Number one, Blessing within sex. If you're married, this is just super practical. If you're married, maybe one of the best things you can do this week is to repent to your spouse. To take a look at how much your sexuality has been bent in on self and go and commit yourself again and say, you know what, I'm here to love and prefer and to serve you and that includes my sexuality. And if you need some scripture to to reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a great place for that. But understanding that if you've been married for a few years, sex is not something that you just get to like hear a sermon and everything's better. This takes work. I would encourage you, if you're if you married and your sex life is a point of tension and brokenness for you, don't be afraid to ask for help. Whether that means you guys, I mean, getting, and I can refer, you guys can send me an email, I can refer some great Christian books out there, whether you guys get a kind of healthy Christian therapist. But don't let that just sit there. God designed this to be blessed. And I think it begins with both of you considering that Jesus would form your idea, your identity of sex. But again, if there's so much wounding from there, you don't know where to begin, ask for help. And don't be ashamed to. It's worth fighting for. Number two, if you're single, understand, understanding that your contentment within sexuality is a vital offering not only to the Lord, but a witness to the world. And if there are times when you're here and you're like, yeah, easy for you to say married guy. All I want to say is you don't need to like look to me. You can look to Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to surrender his sexuality. He was, he was 100% man. He was a 17-year-old man at some point, right? The height of his sex drive. And he knows what it's like to offer that sexuality to his father and live within the contentment. didn't mean that he didn't have longings or a drive. I believe he fully did. Someone asked, do you think Jesus had crushes? Absolutely. Why not? Because he's fully human. So please know that if, if, I, if I don't provide comfort for you as a single person, I totally get it. Please go to Jesus. Let him be the one who speaks into, you, into that area of your life. If you're dating, know this. You have a small window of time where sexual restraint is how you show love. Because once you're married, sexual restraint isn't an option anymore for showing love. It's how you show leverage and control manipulation, right? <laughs> but for, I think for those of you who are dating, understand you have this window To look at that person you desire, more than anything to have sex with and say, you know what, I'm, I'm choosing out of my love and trust for Jesus to look at you and to restrain myself so that the sexuality within our marriage can flourish more. It's an incredible, tangible gift that you can give. But I think we have to be honest that there's still some of us in this room that are saying, well, what about my past? What about my past? And this is what I would, and not to oversimplify this, but please hear me out. Is when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter six, you were bought with a price. I want you to have this image that when Jesus went to the cross and he was looking at you, he was looking at your sexual sin he was looking at every sexual act that you did outside of marriage, when you were young, everything you're doing wrong, and when you sinned sexually later. He's looked at all of that and realized that that's costly. That costs him something. And he looked at you and said, you're worth it. So in the greatest moment in human history, we see the perfect son of God find himself on a cross, naked and ashamed, so we could finally be naked and unashamed. We can be fully exposed once again in the presence of God and that same God took upon our shame upon himself in Hebrews chapter 12 and scorned it. He stood there in our place. There's nothing you've done in the past that God does not have the ability to step into with his grace and mercy and redeem, not just heal and forgive, but bring redemption and restoration in. Please know that. This is the gospel that we preach and if it's not so, then none of us belong here. All of us are here because of this element of grace. It is the deepest part of who we are as a community is the receiving of God's mercy and grace, and that includes our sexuality. And I understand this complex. I understand that there are people sitting in this room right now, and you're like, well, you know what, Benji? What about the people who did sexual things to me? What about the wrong that's been done to me? Please understand that God is wrecked by that. When I talk about grace for people in sexual sin, I, I in no way are condoning or belittling the things that have been done to some of the people in this room. It infuriates the heart of God, which is why the cross was so costly. And so, if you're here and you are the victim of a of, of of, of negative sexual narrative that people have lived into, I want you to know this is a place where you can come and receive healing and mercy. And you can be known and loved in, in, in this place. But every single one of us, there's not, I don't know if there's a person's room who has not been hurt by sex in some way or another. So I think we have to start with grace. Number two, in conclusion, I think not only do we have to start with grace, but we have to move to Surrender. What, is, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you in your specific context of life with your sexuality? I don't care if you're married, single, whatever your sexual orientation is. I would just I would invite you to surrender to Jesus. All of us need to do it. It's what it, what's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. It's saying, "God, I'm going to I'm going to let you in to control my life, and that includes my sexuality, how I view sex, how I live into that." And lastly, my prayer for you is that you leave this place with hope. Hope for your own life. Hope for, if you're married, for your marriage. Hope for our world. That God's vision for sex continues to lead to to flourishing. And that it's through Jesus that we can actually find the healing and the grace that we need to move on from our past and to step into a holistic, restored future that God is offering us. Ryan, you want to come up here and you guys want to stand to your feet. We're just going to spend some time in prayer. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.